0: Elizabeth Patton put down her pencil and leaned back in her chair, stretching. She'd been working for several hours already, and it was only 8 a.m. Her desk calendar told her it was August 18th, 1944, but more importantly, it was Friday. Thank God for that.
1: She thought about squeezing in a walk. However, it was hot on the grounds of Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire, England. Elizabeth worked there as a translator for the British Government Code and Cipher School. The name was intentionally misleading. The organization was responsible for intercepting, deciphering, and translating communications from the Nazis in Europe.
0: The D-Day landings had occurred just 11 weeks ago. Since then, there had been virtually no rest for the codebreakers and translators at Bletchley Park. Allied armies were moving quickly across northern France and hoped to soon recapture Paris from Hitler's forces. Elizabeth was fluent in four languages. She had plenty to
1: do. Taking the next intercepted message from the stack in her inbox, Elizabeth perked up when she saw that it was from Reichsfuhrer S.S. Heinrich Himmler, Adolf Hitler's right-hand man. Any message directly from him was surely important and it had been wired to the head of the SS in France, a man named Karl Oberg.
0: The text was a single sentence in standard German, easy enough to translate. Do not forget to bring the Bayeux Tapestry to a place of safety.
1: Elizabeth looked at the message for a long time. The Bayeux Tapestry? What in the world was that? And why did the highest-ranking Nazis want it?
0: Welcome to Gone, a podcast Original. I'm Molly.
1: And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It
0: really does help. Today, we're investigating the Bayo Tapestry, an embroidery that depicts the Norman invasion of England in 1066 CE. An intricate work of medieval craftsmanship, the final section has been missing since at least the 18th century. We're
1: trying to figure out where that panel went and why someone may have wanted the image depicted on it to disappear.
0: The Bayeux Tapestry is one of the most famous works of art from the Middle Ages. Created in the late 11th century, it doubles as both a wall hanging and a historical document. It depicts the rise of William the Conqueror, whose descendants still sit on the British throne today. But the nine embroidered panels narrate a story that ends partway through, in an abrupt, tattered edge, as if someone didn't want the story's ending told.
1: The beginning, however, is fairly clear. The Bayeux Tapestry's narrative starts with a picture of King Edward the Confessor sending Earl Harold Godwinson to Normandy in the 1060s.
0: In order to fully understand this first image, we have to go back a little further.
1: In the 11th century, England was in perpetual flux. The region had been ruled over by the English House of Wessex, then overtaken by Viking invaders for about 30 years and was now back in the hands of the House of Wessex. When King Edward the Confessor took the throne in 1042, he realized he had very little support. He spent much of his reign trying to gain the favor of local nobles who had thrived under Viking rule.
0: One tactic to curry favor was his marriage to Edith, the daughter of the most powerful person in the kingdom, a man named Godwin. At the time of Edward's accession, Godwin held the title of Earl, controlling a huge swath of land across southern and central England.
1: By aligning himself with Earl Godwin, Edward helped to stabilize his hold on the English throne. But it ultimately came at a cost. Godwin was used to being a power player. He'd been ruling under the Vikings for 30 years.
0: Together with his son, Harold, Godwin held almost as much land and wealth as King Edward himself. And he had an enormous network of supporters around the kingdom, something Edward lacked having spent the past few decades in exile in Normandy.
1: Edward the Confessor spent the first several years of his reign trying to keep his ambitious and powerful father-in-law in line, unsuccessfully.
0: Things came to a head in 1051 when Edward and Godwin disagreed over selecting the next Archbishop of Canterbury. It descended into a full-blown confrontation when Edward accused Godwin of conspiring to have him assassinated.
1: It wasn't so hard to believe. During a succession crisis in the 1030s, Godwin had captured and blinded Edward's brother who was vying for the throne. The man later died from his injuries.
0: The loss of his brother was a thorn that still stuck in Edward's side. At one point during their conflict, Edward sarcastically promised to reconcile if Godwin would restore his dead brother to him, alive and well.
1: Civil wars seemed to be on the horizon, and nobles began to take sides, mostly allying with Edward. Standing up to the king was one thing, but few were actually willing to take up arms against him, especially
0: if they didn't think they could win. Many of Godwin's supporters deserted him, and he soon realized he had to make peace with Edward. In the end, Godwin, Harold, and Godwin's other sons agreed to go into exile, a common way of resolving disputes in the Middle Ages.
1: In fact, going into exile was exactly what Edward and his family had done about 40 years earlier. When the Vikings attacked, the House of Wessex hid in Normandy in modern-day France. In 1051, Godwin took his family to the same
0: place, France. But King Edward's next decision is where the real story begins, a decision that irrevocably altered the history of Western Europe.
1: At the time, Edward was still married to Godwin's daughter, Edith, but that didn't protect her from his wrath. Instead of sending her off to France with her father and brothers, Edward banished his wife to a nunnery. He would have no children with her, meaning he had to pick a different relative as his
0: heir. During his own decades of exile in Normandy, Edward had gotten to know his distant cousin, the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard.
1: The name sounds like an insult today, but in the 11th century, it was a simple statement of fact. William's father, the previous duke, had never married. William was born out of wedlock.
0: By 1051, William the Bastard was in his early twenties and had proven himself a capable political and military leader. And he had aspirations that went far beyond the boundaries of his territory. He could become the childless King Edward's heir.
1: William visited England shortly after Godwin and his sons were exiled. During that visit, Edward promised to make William the next king of England.
0: In addition to solving his succession problem, it was an excellent way to make an ally out of one of the most powerful and connected men in France.
1: But things didn't work out that way. In 1052, Earl Godwin and his son Harold managed to settle their differences with Edward the Confessor and returned to England. With her father and brothers back in his good graces, Edward reconciled with Edith, too, restoring her as queen. At this point, Edith was still in her twenties, with many childbearing years still ahead of her. She could become pregnant with the next rightful King of England at any time, ousting William the Bastard from his role as royal heir.
0: A succession crisis was brewing. To make matters even more complicated, in 1056, Edward learned he had a nephew who was living in Germany. Despite his promise to William and his marriage to Edith, he saw his nephew as the most obvious heir.
1: He summoned that nephew, who was also named Edward, to England that year. But the long journey from Central Europe wreaked havoc on the young man's health. The younger Edward died shortly after arriving in London. With his death, any hope of a peaceful succession for the House of Wessex was shattered.
0: Edward the Confessor still could have settled things with his nephew's son, Edgar. The six-year-old was given the title Ethling, or Prince of the Noble Blood, which implied he was in line for the throne, but as he matured into his teens, Edgar wasn't granted any lands or other titles. It seemed the aging King Edward never considered him a viable heir.
1: Edward the Confessor and Queen Edith remained childless, and the King increasingly removed himself from public life.
0: In the meantime, Godwin died, but Godwin's son Harold grew more powerful He saw to it that his brothers received large earldoms in their own right. By the mid-1060s, they collectively controlled most of England, and Edward seemed resigned to their domination. He'd become so politically weak that when he tried to raise an army in 1065 to put down a local rebellion, no one was willing to fight for him.
1: Edward took this fall from grace hard. He fell ill soon afterward he couldn't even attend the dedication of the greatest building project of his life, Westminster Abbey, which was consecrated on December 28th.
0: On his deathbed, Edward the Confessor grabbed Harold Godwinson's hand and formally entrusted the kingdom to him, breaking his promise to William the Bastard. Several witnesses including Harold's sister, Queen Edith, were present.
1: King Edward died on January 5, 1066. The following day, the Royal Council named Harold as the new King of England. He was crowned soon afterward.
0: But the coronation proved to be the high point of Harold's reign. A number of powerful men, including his own brother, were conspiring to make his time on the throne short.
1: Coming up, Harold's death leads to the creation of the Bayeux Tapestry.
0: Now back to the story.
1: English King Edward the Confessor died in January 1066 with the question of his succession up in the air. He had no children of his own. He'd promised the throne to his distant cousin William 15 years earlier, or so William claimed. But on his deathbed, Edward handed the kingdom over to his brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson.
0: Hearing the news that Harold had become king, William was furious. He immediately began building a fleet of ships to invade England.
1: Harold got wind of the coming invasion and gathered an army to await its landing.
0: But then, nothing happened. As the spring and summer came and went, William's fleet remained in France. Idle armies were difficult to control and even more difficult to feed and house. So by the beginning of September, King Harold was forced to send them all home.
1: But the same day he released his armies, he got word of an invasion from an unexpected quarter. Vikings had landed in Northern England, hoping to take advantage of the political turmoil.
0: Harold quickly reassembled his army and marched north. He defeated the Vikings at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. It was a stunning victory the kind a new king needed to establish his reputation and power.
1: But King Harold and his supporters had no time to celebrate because William the Bastard was finally coming to fight for the throne. He'd cleverly waited to cross the English Channel until the coast was clear of armies.
0: William the Bastard's fleet landed in southern England just three days after King Harold's victory over the Vikings. Harold immediately marched his worn-out army back south and set up camp near the town of Hastings.
1: On October 14th, 1066, the two armies met in what would become one of the most famous battles in Western history. The English gathered in a strong position at the top of a hill, forcing the Normans to attack from below. But William had the advantage of cavalry something the
0: English lacked. After nine hours of intense fighting, Harold was finally killed, allegedly taking an arrow through the eye.
1: With their leader dead, the exhausted English broke ranks and fled. William had won a victory for the ages.
0: With no intention of giving up so easily, the English royal council named Edward's grandnephew, the teenage Edgar Etheling, king. But William was determined to win his crown. He marched on London, burning and pillaging along the way, and forced Edgar to submit without a fight.
1: On December 25, 1066, William was crowned King of England in Westminster Abbey. From that time forward, he would no longer be called William the Bastard. Instead, he became William the Conqueror.
0: Historians believe that it was sometime shortly after William's accession, perhaps as early as 1067, that the Bayeux Tapestry was first commissioned to tell the story of his conquest.
1: Though it's called a tapestry, that's not actually what it is. A tapestry is a woven wall hanging. The Bayo tapestry, on the other hand, is a long strip of linen with scenes embroidered on it from left to
0: right. And it's enormous. Designed like a sort of medieval comic strip, it's less than two feet high, but stretches a mind-boggling 230 feet in length hung horizontally in a cathedral or palace, it would have covered multiple walls.
1: Included on the tapestry are 75 intricate scenes depicting the events leading up to William's invasion, as well as the Battles of Hastings itself. The upper and lower borders have scenes as well, although it's often more difficult to decipher their specific meaning.
0: Most have short inscriptions or headings written in Latin, which help to explain what's happening. Edward the Confessor, William the Conqueror, and Harold Godwinson all feature prominently in the storyline.
1: However, the story on the tapestry differs significantly from the agreed-upon history of Edward the Confessor, Harold Godwinson, and William the Conqueror.
0: Though we don't know who exactly made it, It's clear from the changes that it's meant to put King William in a good light and King Harold in a poor one.
1: The first panel of the tapestry shows King Edward sending Earl Harold to Normandy to meet with Duke
0: William. The next panels show Harold and his companions setting sail before getting blown off course by bad weather. They end up shipwrecked in the county of Pontieu, ruled by a man named Count Guy.
1: In a time-honored medieval tradition, Count Guy captures Harold and his companions and holds them for ransom. It was a common way to make easy money in the feudal world of medieval Europe. According to the
0: tapestry, one of Harold's men escapes and makes his way to Duke William at his palace in Rouen in Normandy. As Guy's liege lord, William demands that Harold be freed Guy is forced to comply.
1: After this, Harold joins William in a battle against the Duke of Brittany, a neighboring duchy to Normandy. Like so much else on the tapestry, it's not clear why Harold is enlisted into this fight, but he's portrayed as distinguishing himself, even going so far as to rescue several of William's soldiers from deadly quicksand.
0: Afterward, William rewards Harold by offering him a sword and a coat of mail. To medieval viewers, the point would have been clear. By fighting for William and being rewarded with gifts, Harold was now William's follower, at least as far as the tapestry's designer was concerned. This
1: point is driven home even more explicitly in the next scene. The tapestry shows William seated regally, while Harold places his hands on two shrines and makes an oath to William.
0: But what precisely did he swear to? Unfortunately, the Bayeux tapestry doesn't give us any insight into this question. The Latin inscription simply describes the scene, stating, here Harold made an oath to Duke William.
1: But the next scene might give an important clue. Following his oath ceremony, the tapestry shows Harold
0: immediately returning to England, where he meets again with Edward. In the scene, Edward is visibly displeased, pointing an accusing finger at Harold. Harold, for his part, stands with his head bowed in nervous submission, almost cowering. His hands make him appear to be pleading with his angry king.
1: Perhaps his oath to William was some kind of betrayal
0: of King Edward. Following Harold's contentious meeting with Edward, the tapestry goes on to narrate Edward's death, including a scene of him touching Harold's hand from his deathbed.
1: Afterwards, Harold is crowned king and displayed prominently on his throne holding the symbols of royalty, an orb and scepter. It's a clear betrayal of the allegiance he'd sworn to William earlier in the tapestry. Whatever the oath was, Harold seems to be becoming
0: a villain in the piece. The next scene shows a group of people looking at a star that streaks across the sky. Halley's Comet appeared over England in the spring of 1066 and was likely interpreted as a bad omen, one of an illegitimate king and an impending war.
1: In the border below this scene are ghostly-looking ships intended to suggest the coming invasion.
0: As the story moves forward, William is depicted building his fleet and then crossing the English Channel. The battle that follows takes up the final 75 feet of the remaining tapestry it includes numerous inscriptions about important moments, including the deaths of two of Harold's brothers.
1: Then comes the final blow when Harold is killed. In its typically terse fashion, the inscription reads, Here King Harold was slain. The picture shows Harold in chain mail with an open-faced helmet and a long mustache. He's grasping an arrow that is firmly implanted in his eye.
0: After his death, Harold's remaining men are shown retreating in disarray, chased by Normans on horseback, armed with swords, spears, lances, and arrows. It seems like King William is about to declare victory.
1: And then the tapestry ends, as if the narration is still in mid-thought.
0: We're left to wonder about the ending for ourselves. Presumably, It would have shown William's clear victory, perhaps a celebration, or his coronation as King of England. Any of these would have cemented the story and William's rule.
1: All seem possible, since what we do have is something of a propaganda piece, embroidered to make William the Conqueror look powerful and his enemy Harold look like a traitor.
0: But if it was propaganda, why doesn't it show William as the rightful king? or even present a clear victory over Harold's army. In what at first appears to be a classic example of history written by the victors, there's not an actual victory portrayed.
1: To make it more complicated, the upper and lower edges of the last existing panel are frayed, rendering some of the smaller images around the border incomplete. There was initially more information about the Battle of Hastings that seems to have been lost to time.
0: And if the abrupt ending wasn't confusing enough, 19th-century restoration efforts only made matters worse. Experts believe much of the final scene has been restitched, possibly over the top of existing holes, which means, again, something present in the original tapestry could have been removed or covered up.
1: The last inscription reading, and the English have turned in flight, is known to have been added in the early 1800s.
0: Was this a hasty addition to give the tapestry some resolution? Could the battle have continued longer, or in a way that put someone who later came into power in an unflattering light?
1: No one is sure of how many more panels initially existed or what they depicted. Still, historians know that at least some of the tapestry is missing and are still trying to discern what secrets it might have held
0: but the mystery is particularly difficult to solve because the banner's journey through history is almost as dramatic as the narrative it depicts. Coming up, we'll explore the remarkable story of the Bayeux Tapestry's loss and rediscovery and discuss the tantalizing mystery of the missing final section. Now, back to the story.
1: The Bayeux Tapestry is one of the most famous relics of the Middle Ages, depicting the events leading up to the Norman invasion of England. Created in the 11th century, shortly after the events it narrates, it's not just a fantastic work of medieval art, but also an important historical document of the Norman Conquest
0: it has allowed historians to verify many events narrated in medieval chronicles while also adding new knowledge to the record. As art historian Carola Hicks has stated, it provides a wealth of information about daily life, including clothes, tools and weapons, ornaments, digging a trench, planing a plank, how a horse clambers out of a ship, and the trappings of falconry. The
1: earliest existing reference to the tapestry comes from a 1476 inventory of items owned by the Cathedral Church of Notre-Dame in Bayeux, France.
0: Bayeux is a town in the northwestern part of Normandy. The cathedral there was dedicated in 1077 during William the Conqueror's reign.
1: The 1476 inventory described the tapestry and stated that it was hung in the cathedral's nave every July 1st in honor of the Feast of Relics. It was displayed annually for eight days before being put back into storage. This tradition likely contributed to its survival. The yearly hanging would have aired it out and prevented residual moisture or mildew from damaging it.
0: But this inventory document only confirms the tapestry was in bail by 1476. How it came to be there is one of the questions historians have been trying to answer for the last 300 years.
1: The most widely accepted theory centers on the likely commissioner of the tapestry, William the Conqueror's half-brother Odo. At William's direction, Odo became the Bishop of Bayo in 1049 and held the position until his death in 1097. The construction and dedication of Bayo's Cathedral was overseen by Bishop Odo. During this time, Odo could have easily commissioned art commemorating his half-brother's victory.
0: Following this thread, the Bayeux tapestry's first public showing may have been timed to coincide with the dedication of the cathedral in 1077.
1: But that still leaves the question, if Odo commissioned it, who stitched hundreds of yards of embroidery? For several centuries, French historians insisted the tapestry was made in France. But closer inspection by modern experts has shown that the tapestry was almost certainly made in England.
0: The primary evidence for this is in the artwork itself. The style and even the type of stitching is more closely associated with British craft. Several of the scenes were even taken directly from illustrations in manuscripts that still exist in the English town of Canterbury.
1: Most historians agree that Odo commissioned the tapestry and oversaw its creation in Canterbury. Then he sent it back home to the provincial village of Bayo, where few eyes would ever see it besides his own.
0: But again, this is just a theory. The tapestry's location during the first few centuries of its existence is a mystery.
1: However, its dimensions seem to match the known layout of Bayo's cathedral in the 11th century. A careful study shows that its scenes fit perfectly between the pillars, and other wall decorations in the nave. That may indicate that it's been in Bayo since its completion in the 11th century, and its presence during those 300 years was simply not considered noteworthy.
0: But oddly, after the tapestry is mentioned in the 1476 Cathedral inventory, it disappears from the historical record again. We can't say how it made it through the Protestant Reformation in 1562 when a mob broke into the Bayeux Cathedral and demolished most of its relics and treasures, including numerous wall hangings.
1: Miraculously, the Bayo Tapestry survived and presumably remained at the cathedral since that's where it was next
0: seen. In the 1690s, the French governor of Normandy, Nicolas-Joseph Foucault, came across the tapestry in Bayeux Cathedral. In addition to his work as a political administrator, he also happened to be a member of one of France's most prestigious historical societies, the Academy of Inscriptions and Fine Letters.
1: Foucault immediately recognized the tapestry's historic value. He hired an artist to make a sketch of it,
0: The drawing, however, was also left incomplete. It appears to have been abandoned after the scenes with Harold in captivity in Pontieu. Foucault, too, seems to have quickly lost interest in the tapestry. He never presented his findings to the Academy.
1: After his death in 1721, the unfinished sketch was found among a stack of his papers. The drawing eventually came to the attention of Academy member, Bernard de Montfaucon in 1724, who set about searching for its subject.
0: It was a huge task. In addition to not knowing where the original art was, he didn't even know what it was. A carving? A stained glass window? A bas-relief sculpture? There was nothing in Foucault's papers to clear up the mystery.
1: But Montfaucon was uniquely suited to the task of finding it. In addition to being a historian, he was also a clergyman with many contacts in cathedrals around Normandy. Since he believed this drawing was likely a copy of a stained glass window, he began writing letters to every church he could think of.
0: He finally reached an administrator of the cathedral in Bayeux. The priest told Montfaucon that it was a tapestry and they stored it in a cedarwood box in one of the cathedral's chapels. They still displayed it in the
1: nave annually in July, but no longer as part of a feast honoring important relics. Instead, it was simply hung along with other old tapestries to air out during the warm weather. They had no idea what it was or how long the church
0: had owned it. In 1729, Monfoken published a book that discussed the Bayo tapestry and printed drawings of its scenes, but sometime between the tapestry's commission in the 11th century and Monfaucon's book in 1729, the final panel had gone missing.
1: We can't say exactly how or when the panel disappeared, only that we know
0: by then it was gone. Sadly, the tapestry still wasn't safe after Monfaucon's publication. The French Revolution presented a new set of threats. In 1790, the Revolutionary National Assembly nationalized all French churches and seized their property. Cathedrals were looted and many of their treasures destroyed. A
1: number of Bayot's sacred paintings and statues fell victim to mobs seeking to wipe out the trappings of religion. But the secular nature of the tapestry may have helped save it. In
0: 1792, when the war broke out with England, the National Assembly issued a general call to arms. In Bayo, tapestries were requisitioned to be used as cart covers. But at the last minute, a local lawyer managed to grab the Bayo tapestry before it was taken by the soldiers. He hid it for safekeeping in his own office. Then, in 1794, the tapestry was selected
1: to be used during a local festival dedicated to the genius of arts. The plan was to cut it into sections to decorate a parade float. But the local art commission stepped in at the last minute, and the tapestry made yet another narrow escape.
0: After more than 600 years, it made its way into a museum in Bayo. In 1842, the tapestry was restored and protected behind glass.
1: But only for a century. During World War II, it faced even more possible damage. The Germans overran France in 1940 and effectively took control of the country. Heinrich Himmler, leader of the Nazi SS, had a personal obsession with antiquities. To that end, he had a castle back in Germany that he was restoring and remodeling with medieval art. He wanted the Bayeux Tapestry to decorate his
0: great dining hall. Himmler was content for the time to leave the tapestry in Bayeux, planning to take it when the war was over. But when the Allies landed in France in June of 1944, Himmler began to worry that he might miss out on stealing it.
1: So he arranged for the tapestry to be moved to the Louvre Museum in Paris. It was good timing on his part. Bayo ended up being one of the first towns the Allies liberated.
0: As the summer of 1944 progressed, the Nazis were forced to retreat farther and farther. When Allied armies neared Paris in late August, Himmler instructed his deputies to retrieve the tapestry and bring it to a safe place, probably Berlin.
1: Four days later, two SS officers arrived at the Louvre to pick up the tapestry. They were met with gunfire.
0: Without their knowledge, British codebreakers had intercepted Himmler's message. They'd notified the French resistance, which was able to secure the Louvre before the Nazis could get there.
1: Had Himmler spirited the tapestry back to Germany, it likely wouldn't have survived the destructive final weeks and months of World War II when Berlin was reduced to rubble.
0: With all these narrow escapes, it's little wonder that part of the tapestry is missing. In fact, it's amazing so much of it still exists.
1: Luckily, we can use these pieces to deduce what's missing, and what may have happened to it. The tapestry is made of nine separate panels of linen cloth which were sewn together after each section was already embroidered. The two longest segments are each 45 feet long. Apparently, that was too difficult to work with, as the remaining sections were shorter, averaging about 23 feet long. The final two sections are less than 10 feet apiece.
0: A careful study of the stitching and damage shows that most of the ninth panel is likely gone. Based on the lengths of the other panels, experts estimate anywhere from three to seven feet are missing.
1: But a 2019 article in the Journal of the British Archaeological Association has challenged this theory. In a new study, art historian Christopher Norton suggested an entire tenth panel is missing. Norton asserts this panel would have been almost 10 feet in length. That's up to 17 feet of potential missing tapestry.
0: So what did that missing segment actually depict? It may have featured the burial of Harold in an unconsecrated ground rather than a church or abbey. Such an ignominious funeral would imply that Harold's kingship was invalid before God, reinforcing William's claim. If this is the case, it might have been destroyed decades later by William the Conqueror's embarrassed descendants. They likely didn't want to keep around any evidence that their legendary forefather treated his enemies without dignity.
1: Conversely, it may have shown Harold's burial at Waltham Abbey, where he was given the last rites appropriate for a king. Any sign of Harold being revered as a king contradicted King William the Conqueror's narrative of Harold as a usurper. So upon seeing the embroidered scene, the tapestry's creator, Odo,
0: might have immediately ordered it to be removed. However, in a much less salacious theory, British archaeologist Trevor Raleigh proposes the tapestry's final panel was exactly what historians would expect, William the Conqueror's coronation.
1: And as to who destroyed it? H2O. Raleigh proposed the final panel was lost to moisture damage. Raleigh pointed out that the tapestry was kept folded in a cedarwood box, which helped prevent damage by moths but it would have been folded with the final portion of the tapestry at the top. This might have left the final panel more prone to moisture seeping in.
0: To that point, historians have no way of knowing how the tapestry was stored prior to the 15th century. Moisture, moths, or even fire could have reached it before that.
1: The biggest support for this theory is actually artistic symmetry the tapestry begins with an image of Edward on his throne. Around the middle portion, a similar scene is depicted, this time with Harold being crowned following Edward's death. It would make sense to bookend the tapestry with William also on a throne in a crown.
0: Some have even gone so far as to suggest that the three throne scenes may have been designed for maximum aesthetic benefit in a properly sized display room. The tapestry would have stretched around all four walls, with the doorway situated between the beginning and the end. As such, when a viewer walked into the room, Edward, the old king, would have been on the left at the start of the tapestry. William, who the tapestry's designer believed was the proper heir to Edward, would have been to the right at the end of the tapestry. In the middle,
1: directly across from the doorway, a viewer would have seen Harold accepting his crown. His distance from Edward and William would symbolize what the tapestry's designer believed was his false claim to the throne.
0: If that's truly how it was designed and displayed, it would have made for a stunning visual presentation. It would also have been an effective propaganda tool for William as he sought to legitimize his reign. While it makes
1: for fun speculation, most experts agree that the tapestry wasn't intentionally destroyed, which means it showed the obvious, historically accurate conclusion of the saga, William the Conqueror's coronation.
0: Of course, we can only speculate on how the Bayeux Tapestry may once have looked, It's currently housed in its own dedicated museum in Bayo, attracting hundreds of thousands of visitors each year. It's a meaningful relic for the French and English alike.
1: The U.K. requested the tapestry in 1953 for Queen Elizabeth's coronation, but France refused. The British again asked for it in 1966 for the 900th anniversary of the conquest, but again, France said no. However,
0: in 2018, authorities announced that a memorandum of understanding between the two countries had been signed. In 2022, while the museum in Bayo undergoes extensive remodeling and rebuilding, the tapestry will finally be loaned to the British. That will
1: likely be the first time in more than 900 years that the tapestry has been outside of France. And just like William the Conqueror in the story the Bayo Tapestry depicts, it'll cross the English Channel to make history. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. For more information on the Bayeux Tapestry, amongst the many sources we used, we found Carola Hicks' The Bayeux Tapestry and Mark Morris's The Norman Conquest extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find more episodes of Gone and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify.
1: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast originals like Gone for free from your
0: phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow
1: us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
0: Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found.
1: Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Gone was written by Scott Christmas, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.